Okay, so I'm going to be talking today about positive parenting practices and associated weight gain, and this is material uh, taken from a manuscript that we submitted to pediatrics, uh, I don't know, sometime in the summer. It's taking them a long time to get back to us. Um, Rosmi, who's here somewhere? Where'd she go? She moved. Um, <laughs> took a lead on this, and you see the other authors listed there. Um, and as Angela said, this was work that began with a C grant from the Nutrition Center, which we're very grateful for. Uh, there were um, some other roads we traveled down before we ended up on this road um, coming from that C grant, and that's just the way things go sometimes. So, uh, does this work? I don't think so. All right. So, so I was looking at the news this morning, uh, and to try to convey the idea that this is, this is relevant, um, th there is this article from Time Magazine uh, that um, about, about obese kids, uh, if parents are obese, the parents lose custody. They're, they're really, though the title hasn't said this, they're talking about morbidly obese kids. But one of the um, important examples that's in the courts now is in South Carolina, a 14-year-old boy who's about 555 pounds, and he's been taken from the mother, and um, so there's a whole set of issues around, around that, that she can't, uh, he's too big to qualify for any weight loss program, so she, they can't even get services, and anyway, so, and there was, um, what prompted the article was a case in Scotland that had just happened, and then I also came across this article in something called Daily Skiff, which is a college media publication, um, Emily Sears is a freshman in some school, but anyway, so the, she wrote this article about firm parenting, key to solving child obesity, and in there I, I was just struck by some of the words that were being used were forceful, parents needing to be more forceful and, and have better control over things, and not sure that that's really what we want. Okay. So, so we, we do know that the child risk of being overweight and obese is related to a number of things at different levels, the characteristics of the child themselves, uh, the household resources. We know there's an association with, with poverty. That association is getting stronger, actually, in this country. Uh, as children become more and more obese, the, and uh, the relationship to poverty is getting stronger. Uh, the fam familial social cultural environment and the school and community settings and things that are happening at even higher levels than that. And obviously where parents fit is, in the, is they are the ones who primarily shape the, the family's social cultural environment. So parents can influence child development in a number of ways, directly through caregiving, uh, vicariously through modeling behaviors, norms, and attitudes so that children observe them and, and somehow learn from what they do, but also indirectly by creating a home environment that itself is shaping development. And development psychologists have long known that, that how parents shape the environment has a major influence. So positive parenting uh, has been shown to be associated with instrumental and social competence that it's also associated with low levels of problem behavior, and it can mitigate the effects of family adversity on child developmental outcomes. So it can play a role directly um, in terms of uh, shaping the child's competence and behavior, but also can buffer the child when things are not so great in the family. 
So how might parents, parenting influence um, child weight gain? Well, the first bullet there refers to behaviors that are very specific to the things that we think are the inputs to energy balance, which are, which are how they themselves, um, their own styles about feeding and exercise, and how they model those behaviors can then influence the child's own eating patterns and the child's physical activity. But it also may be that, and that's what our interest was in this work, that general family functioning and parenting that's part of that can impact behaviors that are related to child weight gain. And as, and as you'll see, there's a little bit of evidence to suggest that, and we wanted to, to, to build on that more. So for example, in the literature, there's um, a study that shows that fruit consumption among adolescents was associated with controlling but warm and involved parenting. That another study looked at um, the fact that children who were in uh, stimulating cognitively stimulating environments that are not great uh, were more uh, likely to develop obesity. And another study that showed that if you incorporate parent training into uh, more general parent training into a management program for diet and physical activity, about uh, diet and physical activity um, into a behavioral parenting program that that can reduce body fat. So all of those are suggesting that there's something potentially about parenting in general that, that might be relevant to weight gain. So the, the rationale is basically then that uh, positive parenting practices that are not directly related to healthy weight and physical activity may lead to lower obesity risk that we should then examine that and which, in particular, which practices, which behaviors of parents are, are most related. And this might be important because of the potential utility of practitioners working with families to promote and reinforce um, positive parenting and therefore better sort of health lifestyles. So our objectives were to uh, two, really the primary objective was the first one there, to identify parenting practices that could potentially set children in different weight trajectories. But in the context of this, we were aware of and wanted to investigate the fact that we would, might expect any associations we see to be modified by gender, because boys and girls are different in lots of ways and they're treated differently in lots of ways, and also because we have an interest in the families that are most vulnerable, where children are most vulnerable, families that are low income. Okay, so as a sort of theoretical background, we actually spent quite a bit of time on this over, over uh, many, many months um, trying to develop a conceptual framework uh, that helped us understand how we should even think about the ways in which overall parenting might be related to weight gain and healthy eating and physical activity. And we developed a very elaborate um, model, which I will spare you. Um, what we took from, and the reason we did that is because when you look in the literature, it's simply not there. There's some bits and pieces of things, and some things that are actually quite comprehensive, but really off target, and we think we've done a better job. We still have work to do to refine that. But what we needed for here was to basically say, how should we think about the kinds of behaviors that were available to us in data sets that we could look at? And so we focused on four things. On the provision of cognitive, cognitively stimulating activities, um, which can include activities that the parents does with the child, but also uh, activities that the children do, but the parents can facilitate. Uh, family routines, which has both to do with, uh, in this way of talking about it, 
parent rules about behavior, how they structure and shape what children can do and not do, and also the daily routines that families, that parents establish for their families. Third, um, ch uh, parental disciplinary practices. Uh, and fourth, how the parent relates effectively to the child. Um, and, and so that includes uh, warmth, uh, positive regard, emotional support, or typically how we would think about those things. All right, so we have, we have cognition here, and then sort of emotional development here, and then in between are listed uh, things about routines and discipline, uh, how parents interact with their children. So we, we had available two data sets, two national, uh, re nationally representative data sets. The first is the Early Childhood Longitudinal Study. There's two cohorts that were started by the National Education, National Center for Ed Educational Statistics. Is that right? Yeah. Um, one was a birth cohort, and this is a kindergarten cohort. So these, this cohort is children who, in a national sample, were taken from elementary schools. They weren't physically taken. They were measured. Um, in, when they were in kindergarten starting in the fall of 1998, and they've been followed since then up to grade eight. Uh, they did survey and also direct assessment using a multi-stage probability cluster sample design. Uh, there's parent and ch child data. There's actually some other data available too. Um, but we use the data from kindergarten and fifth grade for this. Um, most of the attrition, you'll see there's some attrition from 18,000 down to 11. Most of that is because uh, children moved away. And either they moved in places where they couldn't be measured or they moved in places where nobody could find them. Uh, the fifth grade data was also not collected if the children at that point were ineligible for some reason. Uh, if they were subsampled out and not followed, uh, if there were some refusals, and if they had missed somehow the first grade and the third grade data collection but were then available for fifth grade, they decided not to bother. So we ended up with a sample of about 9,000 children that, had, that were complete for BMI, which was our primary outcome body mass index, and also other variables. The other data set is the child development supplements, there were two of them in 1997 and 2002, that's a part of the panel study of income dynamics, a much larger survey that's ongoing. And uh, this was a national, the CDS is a national subsample of families, uh, two to 12 years old. Um, that, those children come from about 2,400 families. And we restricted our analysis, after much debate, um, to six to nine-year-old children um, the primary reason being that we wanted to be compatible with the age group we're looking at for the ECLSK. All right, so our primary outcome here is body mass index, which is weight uh, in kilograms divided by height in meters squared. And in the ECLSK, both height and weight, the components of that were measured, uh, and quite well measured, it seems. Uh, in the PSID, uh, in 19, I really don't understand that why this happened, but in 1997, weight was reported by the primary caregiver. Um, it was measured later, and, but height was measured at both times. So how they managed to measure height, which is more difficult to measure, and not weight, I don't understand. All right. So in order to, um, to work with the data, we decided to express it in terms of Z-scores. So in a, in a Z-score, 
<coughs> if it's a normal distribution, it's very simple. You take a child's measurement, you compare that to the median of the reference. The reference here is the CDC 2000 growth charts. So you subtract it away from the median and you divide by the standard deviation of the reference. And the idea is that um, if children were growing, then exactly on average, they would be at zero. Okay, and uh, we, then you have standard deviation units on both sides of that. And you can easily convert that into a centile score um, if you wanted to do that. Uh, in a case of BMI where the data are not normal, it turns out the z-score calculation is a function of the skewness, but it's relatively straightforward. So pictorially what this means is that um, we'll be looking at scores that are in standard deviation units and, for example, the usual classification for overweight and obesity for children are up here at 85, 85th percentile, which is about here, and the 95th percentile, which is about there. One of the reasons for doing this is that um, because you, the z-scores reference the age of the child, uh, and they're also sex-specific, sex that it removes some of the variation that you'd otherwise have to be worried about. Okay, so um, we also wanted to look at income, uh, so we had access to information about the poverty index ratio, which was computed um, using the federal poverty threshold guidelines for 1998, which is roughly about the time when both cohorts uh, moved forward. And it was, we categorized it at the 185% level in order to distinguish two groups, low income from non-low income. And that's the cut point, for example, that's used for the women's infants and child program. Okay, in, in the ECLSK, um, I'm not going to show you all the detailed parenting questions. We'll, when we get to the results, you'll see it there. But the stem of the questions were basically, in a typical week, how often do you or any other family member do the following things with your child? And there was a long list of things. Um, there were also questions about, in the past month, has anybody in the family done the following things? And they were there, the list of activities. Uh, the routine questions primarily came from items that started with, are there family rules about whatever, television, something. And then there was one question, this question on uh, discipline um, that we looked at. Sometimes kids mind pretty well. This is actually really difficult to get at, and, and in the um, CDS data where we had lots of choices about this, we sort of made ourselves crazy for, well, we made Rasmi crazy and, and Wendy crazy for a while, trying to figure out what was the best ones to use. Just discipline questions in general are difficult, but this is the one that we use, how many times, if any, have you spanked your child in the past week, which is a fairly severe form of physical discipline. In the, uh, the PSID CDS, um, this is different because there, the, the uh, families and the parents and children the primary caregiver and child were directly observed by the interviewer, so it wasn't questionnaire-based. And there, there were 11 items, and most of those items indicated how frequently the interviewer observed a particular caregiver behavior towards the child, and they, they rated that um, often to never. Okay. In terms of uh, statistical analysis, we were interested in looking at the association of parenting practice at the initial time, at kindergarten, so we're, we're trying to look prospectively to say, let's look at um, uh, behaviors at kindergarten and ask whether or not, as the child moves forward from kindergarten to fifth grade, is that related to the amount of weight gain that they had, or BMI change, actually. Okay, so uh, this was done in STATA, so we used linear regression where we adjusted for the initial BMI Z-score, um, 
and also for the child's age. It turns out that when you use change in, from kindergarten to fifth grade in the z-scores as an outcome variable, uh, because that's measured for each child, it not only re removes the effect of other um, unmeasured variables that are time invariant for the child, but it also removes all the cluster-to-cluster -cluster variation, which simplified our life immensely to not have to worry about that in the analysis. So, uh, and then we did, uh, because it's a disproportionate probability sample, you have to worry about sampling weights, so we did the analysis with and without sampling weights and more or less got the same results, so we uh, didn't use the weights. And then the analysis was stratified both by income above and below this 185 line, but also by gender. But that could be done only for the ECLSK where the sample was large enough. The sample we have of six to nine year olds in the PSID is relatively small, about 230. Okay, so let me show you um, some initial results. Uh, the, the first results are just descriptive for, for um, the cohort as a whole for the ECLSK. So on average, the, the BMI Z-score was 0.41, which means on average this cohort at kindergarten was about 0.4 standard deviations above the CDC reference. That, that in itself is not such a great thing, given that the CDC reference um, really represents, well, it represents child growth in primarily the 70s and, and 80s. Um, so since then, we know there's a continued secular trend, and that's reflected there. In grade five, that goes up to 0.62. That's um, kind of expected. We, we expect BMI um, itself to go up, but what we don't want is for the BMI Z-score to go up. So the fact that BMI goes up is okay. The fact that the Z-score goes up is indicative that over time, children relative to the CDC reference are getting even more overweight. So the, and that's reflected in the percent overweight went up from 14 to 18 and obese from 12 to 21%. That's sobering. Uh, the mean change over that time was 0.21, which is basically the same as the difference here. Well, I put this up here, though, because you can see there's a lot of variation in it. The, the, the standard deviation is about 0.8 z-score units, standard deviation units, which is quite a lot of variation. And also you can see that in this sample, about 39% were below this poverty threshold. Okay, so I'm going to first show some prevalence information from the two different cohorts so you get an idea of uh, the, how often these behaviors are occurring and uh, which ones are more frequent. So this is by gender from ECLSK. And the cut point here was, that we used was... Um, equal to or above three to six times per week. So we're making a cut point less than three times per week and above three times per week. And then, so we see here girls and then boys and a p-value here. The sample's so large that even really small differences are significant, statistically significant. So we really need to look at the prevalences here. So you can see that um, this is for cognitive stimulation, reading books, telling stories, singing songs, arts and crafts doing household chores. In general, uh, the pattern is that girls, um, that the, the uh, prevalence for girls is higher than it is for boys. You can see uh, that the differences aren't huge. It's about six percentage points here, about 10 percentage points here. 
Okay, so parents are doing these things more often with girls. Uh, some of that's actually disturbing, you know, like, um, you know, reading books and telling stories. I mean, the cumulative effect of this is, you know, we're looking item by item, but the cumulative effect is a lot more exposure to girls, apparently, than for boys in these activities. And then continuing um, playing games, talking about nature, building something, or, or playing, uh, and then playing a sport or exercise, you can see that in this set, um, for example, these two items are where boys are favored. So, so parents are apparently uh, interacting more with boys about building something or playing something, uh, a sport or exercise, than they are with girls. So there's clearly a difference in the investment of activity on the part of parents for the two genders. Okay, and these are uh, activities, things that the parent does uh, with their child. And um, these are all pretty close. Uh, this one's about four percentage points different, but they're all pretty close between boys and girls. And this is, this is uh, I was a little surprised by this. This is really pretty low. All right, then in terms of, uh, so that's uh, stimulation in terms of routines and disciplinary practices, sort of the same, the same kind of table. So here the, uh, the routines are uh, when can the child watch TV, are there rules um, about what kinds of programs they can watch, and do they have a usual bedtime. Uh, and you can see that all of those, there's not much difference between boys and girls. And the disciplinary practice, spanking, uh, there's, again, not too much difference, but about a quarter of parents are reporting that they've, they spanked their child. Not a recommended procedure. Okay, and then uh, going further now, I'm going to show um, some of the items, not all of them, uh, broken down also by income so we can see some of the differences between um, high and low income. All right, so in here, I, I didn't show the, um, I'm not showing all of the reading books and all of those items, uh, but it's, it's similar, to, similar to these. In general, uh, the prevalence of these behaviors is higher in higher income families than it is in low income families. So, so for girls here, we can see this is high income and versus low income, that you know, it's 35 versus 24, 42 versus 37, et cetera. Uh, here it's very dramatic that there's a difference between about 30% and 70% in favor of high-income families. And this is also uh, a fairly large difference. And then for boys, there's a similar, a similar pattern and a similar discrepancy. So in general, what we're seeing is that children in higher-income families are advantaged, we already knew that, but they're advantaged in these ways. And then in terms of family routines, uh, again, a similar structure. The, these items here are about the same for both girls. Uh, for girls, um, although this one's somewhat different and, and also a little bit more even so for boys. Um, having a usual bedtime, there's about a 10-point difference here and also for boys. Uh, and then there's also a difference in spanking, but it's in the opposite direction. So low-income families are more likely to report that they've spanked their child. 
So again, suggesting that all the things we would want parents to do are, are disadvantaged for low-income children, and the things we probably don't want parents to do are actually higher in the, that group. All right, so that's, that's what we had from the ECLSK. What we didn't have from the ECLSK was information about parental warmth, the other component of the four that we wanted to look at. And so from the PSID, we decided in that, in that uh, sample, which was much smaller, that there we would only look at the parental warmth information. So here's, here's what we have from that. And again, this couldn't be broken down any further by groups. So uh, this is a parental caregiver. So the items here are spontaneously spoke or conversed with the child. So about 52% of um, primary caregivers, mostly mothers, reported that. I guess they were all, all mothers? All mothers, okay. Um, responding verbally to the child, a speech or questions or requests, um, caressing, kissing, or hug the child only reported 10%. What are we doing? Um, right, this is observed, observed during the visit, right, so. Rasmi, do you remember how long the visit was? Yeah. yeah. Um, providing toys or other interesting activities, uh, voice conveying a positive feeling about the child. I mean, even that's only about 61%. Uh, kept the child in view, could see the child, looked at the child about a quarter. Uh, spontaneously praised the child, um, looking for positive qualities, warm and affectionate, again about 60% or so, extremely warm and loving to the child, um, showing pride or pleasure, um, showing warmth and tone when talking to the child. So you see sort of about the best we get out of this is about 60% for any of these sort of positive warmth things that we're hoping for. All right, so now the main event is we want to know, okay, given all that, what does this have to do with um, differential weight trajectories? So what, I've what I did was, uh, you can imagine with all these items, we have lots and lots of regression coefficients. So I've only selected the ones to show you where there was any suggestion that you know, that it was statistically reliable. So from the ECLSK, and I've, I've given it broken down by um, uh, gender and also by income, to, to give you an idea. The magnitudes, first of all, the ones are in bold and the ones that are significant. And the, and the biggest one in magnitude, I think, is this one, which is about 0.16 standard deviation units. So it's not, they're not huge effects. It's statistically significant because we have a large sample and it's in, it's in the expected direction, but the magnitudes that we're, we're pulling from this are, are not, not that large. All right, so you can see that, um, first, one thing you can see is that the group where there's the most bolded are the girls who are high income. Um, and Okay, so what are those? That's talking about nature, visiting an art gallery or museum, visiting a library, participating in dance or athletics, and participating in music and art. All of those for high income girls, if they engage in that activity, uh, then their weight, their weight gain from kindergarten to fifth grade was less in relative terms. And we also see uh, for low income girls doing arts and crafts and having a usual bedtime was associated with weight trajectory. And then for boys, fewer things were associated. Um, the two that were for low-income boys was building something or um, 
or playing, and then uh, dance and athletics. And you can see for the high-income boys, it was dancing, athletics, and participation in music and art. So, and then again, this is out of a sort of a larger set of, of activities that we looked at. And then from these, uh, th that was from the UCLSK. Um, uh, let me just comment here that um, these all had to do with stimulation. This one, of course, has to do with routine. Uh, the spanking variable was not related to weight gain. And then the fourth, the fourth domain we have is warmth. And for warmth, out of the set that I showed you, these are the ones that were uh, statistically significant in... Uh, in the PSID, the magnitude here is about, the biggest one is about 0.2 standard deviations. So these are um, conversing with the child, uh, resp responding verbally to the child's speech, questions or requests, uh, showing warmth uh, through physical affection, and throwing, showing warmth in tone. So all of those, again, were related to, to a, b a better weight gain trajectory or a lower weight gain trajectory. None of them were significant in the opposite direction, so we didn't find anything that predicted greater weight gain. All right. So let's sort of step back now and, and think about, about this. Um, we know, first of all, that child, children are supposed to gain weight, obviously. Um, that's normal and expected, but we're, what we're concerned about is that we know that as children progress from early childhood by the time they get to adolescence that they tend to become obese and we know that that's manifested um, not just in the US but in other populations it gets manifested the more and more the later the later um, it goes and in in the US and in a little bit earlier time in many other countries it really doesn't start being manifested until after about age 10 oftentimes not until about after age 14 what we're seeing is that as obesity becomes sort of more um, has penetrated the population more, if you like. It's happening at earlier, earlier times. So we're concerned about that. Parents obviously are a natural target for trying to do something about this. Um, not the only target, as those articles seem to imply. Um, but um, certainly we need to think about parents and their role. And that we also know that interventions in other realms that have uh, um, attempted to solve other problems um, with children through positive parenting have been successful. So we have <coughs> one that was done in South Carolina that Sherry Shapiro, who's part of our research team here and in psychology, and her colleagues uh, did a very important study showing on a large-scale basis that promoting parenting reduced rates of child abuse and neglect in a, in a way that's actually now scalable in, in different places. We also know that providing a cognitively stimulating environment, expressing warmth, and having family routines, from, from this now we're saying that this, these are related to uh, lower weight gain. So this is really what we're adding to the sort of the perspective that we've already had. In terms of cognitive st stimulation, some of the things we know from the literature, we found a couple of papers that directly related to this. One is this article by Strauss and Knight that showed that children who were in relatively average or poor cognitive stimulating environments were twice as likely to become obese. Uh, and this other study uh, 
showed that um, children who first became overweight in elementary school subsequently had fewer opportunities for productive activity at home, um, uh, and that was different with those who were never overweight. So children who were overweight had different experiences than children who were not overweight. So what we found, adding to that, is this association between change in BMI-Z score, but those changes were specific to, those associations were specific to gender, but also to income status. Um, that parents um, spending time engaging in, uh, spending time in engaging interesting activities with children may be more important to child's weight status than the activity per se. That's one of the interpretations we're bringing from this. We think one of the reasons why we're seeing that we see an association with a number of different items but not all items is it probably is that any one activity itself is not that important. What's important is that there are some activities that are, that are going on and that if the parent is engaging with the child in some positive way that that's going to have uh, a relationship to subsequent weight gain. And then finally that it's important to promote activities that then engage families and are within their means including among low-income families. So part of the reason why we wanted to look at uh, the low-income groups separate is because we know because of the challenges they face we have to be particularly thoughtful about what it is we recommend that they do. Um, asking them to go bring their child to a very expensive museum just may not be the right thing to, to, to ask them to do. In terms of fairly routines, routines have to do with uh, it's one indicator of family organization. Um, we know that, it, that routines play a powerful role in, in how children are socialized and in motivation and in terms of their overall health. Uh, what we saw was that having a set bedtime was associated with lower change in the BMIC scores, and that was true for both boys and girls. And some reason why that might be related is, is suggested by this article where they, they looked at um, the link between short sleep uh, duration and energy balance and out of that article they were recommending strict bedtimes as a way of promoting sleep which in turn would then have other benefits and there's been quite a lot of discussion and interest even on this campus around the role that sleep has in obesity prevention. In terms of parental warmth again we saw that uh, several manifestations of uh, or expressions of warmth were associated with lower change in BMI Z score um, from the literature, there's a couple of articles. Uh, one showed that low paternal affection, affection of fathers, was associated with elevated risk. Uh, their outcome measure was uh, the use of medication to lose weight in adolescents. Not sure that's a great idea either, but anyway, use of medications in adolescents and early adulthood. So when that was the outcome, uh, low father affection was related to that. And another study sort of conversely showed no association between warmth um, reported by both father and mother and, and the child's BMI. But the children there were four to five years old, preschool children younger than what we've looked at. And so it might be that this doesn't show up in, in younger children. Or also may be that it's something that has to accumulate over time, that the effect of warmth is something that um, builds over time and therefore becomes more evident in older age groups. So some implications of this are, first of all, that um, we think then that promoting cognitive stimulation, warmth, and family routines appears to be important for positive child development outcomes. That's true across multiple domains. What we've added is, is adding to that list of domains for which that's true weight, weight trajectory. That 
Attending to these behaviors is potentially useful as a way of identifying and targeting families. And at least for some families, this, this may be a way that could be helpful. Um, that uh, healthcare professionals, in particular, are positioned to promote parenting practices. Um, oftentimes, for families, really the only person they interact with about that might be the pediatrician. And oftentimes, probably most often, there's no interaction around parenting in a pediatrician's office. But there could be, and it might not have to be a very big dose of, a, of interaction in order to have an effect. And, and we think that, um, of course, here we were writing for the pediatric, you know, pediatrician's audience here, but uh, sort of an exhortation to them that, yeah, you can do this because even though time is really a constraint in a pediatrician's office, um, if you're dealing with a, uh, the development of obesity in a child, it doesn't take a huge investment to sort of bring into the discussion how are you dealing with the child in an overall parenting sense. And that's the end. So questions or comments? I was wondering if um, for the participants, are you going to actually give them some of these research findings? And if so, what I've, I've seen the implications, but like, what suggestions would you tell those parents if you were to present the findings to them? Like, um, enroll your children in athletics and dance class if you have the ability to do so? Well, I think the basic message is kind of the basic message that we've always had for parents, which is spend time with your child in a positive way. Do something with them. Whatever is within your means, just spend positive time with your child. Uh, it also says something about that, that uh, well, again, we already knew this. Chaos, overwhelming chaos is bad for children. Uh, and having some structure and some routine is, a real, is really important for children. And there's a suggestion here, and as I said, I think there's a building consensus around, at least theoretically, that sleep is, is very important. And for many children, uh, sleep is severely compromised. And our school systems, as those of you who have parents currently in the school system know, the school systems don't necessarily cooperate with that. And we do some crazy things in our society. For adolescents, we know that biologically adolescents seem predisposed to staying up late and getting up early, and yet in most school systems, they're the ones who have to be at school by 7 o'clock in the morning. That doesn't make sense, except from transportation and you know, some other points of view. But it doesn't make sense from the child's point of view. So your last point in terms of you know, how do we intervene as healthcare professionals, it makes me think about the times I've gone as a pediatrician and you get these um, handouts every time you go. And they're always focused on the development of the pediatric child. There's really, I'm just thinking back to those sheets that I've gotten from the pediatrician. There's no mention of obesity, and there's no mention of parenting. So you're right. I mean, here I am and my husband are, you know, highly, maybe overly educated people. And, have, and there's, there's no sort of um, discussion about being good parents, which is very odd. Very odd. But creating those spaces, I think, Yeah. It's interesting that what made me think about um, several years ago, I'm going to not remember, maybe Sonia remembers, um, WIC was sort of re-examining itself, Women's Infant Children Forum was re-examining itself, and they got a report from a consultant which basically said that, you know, one of the major challenges in WIC is how do you keep the, and the well, this is true in anything, how do you keep the frontline workers motivated? Um, 
and really get them engaged. And the argument was made that, you know, what parents really care about and what program workers really care about is helping parents do a better job. That's really where you could get people excited. And so the WIC program ought to position itself as playing a role in promoting overall parenting. As far as I know, that initiative never went anywhere. But somebody thought about it at least. Uh -huh. Some of the activities listed were actually um, physical activities, um, the dance and athletics and something else, I can't remember. So, uh, and it's probably, I mean, it's more something just to, I guess, reflect on as to, to what extent that's cognitive versus physical. And kind of related to that, I noticed that for boys, most of the activities that were significantly associated with a positive trajectory were actually physical activities. And girls, it seemed like there were more cognitive activities. So there, I mean, there's probably just more things there to, to kind of explore and understand what's going on. Yeah, no, that's right. I, I, I think if, I would say if the, if the only activities that showed up associated with weight gain were ones that were, you know, related to physical activity, it would have supported, I think, more the idea that getting kids to be physically active is going to make a difference. But what we see is, as you said, a, you know, across a wider range of, of activities. Actually, for the boys, it might be more physical activities, I, um, well, at least in the one chart I'm thinking of, but for the girls, it seemed to be broader. Right. But it still begs the question, is it the activity it itself that matters, or is just those are the kinds of activities which our society sort of encourages boys to participate in? Yeah, it would be so. possible to really separate yeah. that, I think. Yeah. Because of these findings, do you think there's any um, implications with the increase of wealthy mothers around with obesity, child obesity? Do you think that has an impact on that? Hmm. It's interesting you ask that. I wish Mariah were here. <laughs> Mariah couldn't be here today because she's in a faculty meeting. But we were at um, last Thursday, a week, week ago yesterday, uh, for another study that Sonia, Mariah, and I are involved with that some others in the room have helped. Um, on, uh, she was presenting findings at this conference, the UCA conference. And one of the first talks, maybe the first talk, was about he showed this graph. And it was a graph of, the ob of um, obesity rates. And overlaid with that was a, a curve that showed female labor force participation, and they almost completely coincide. And so he set off to investigate, is this relationship causal in some way or not, which made Mariah crazy because, in her view, why would anybody think that this was, you know, causally related? But um, so I don't know. I mean, he basically did not find much relationship, although the technical challenges and in sorting it out are severe, so um, I don't know. What do you think? Is is, is a reason why we should? Huh? Yeah, I always worry about like you know any negative effects our children will have from the abortion, but we can't have children, but I'd hope not. I don't know. I I mean, could there be? Yeah, I Mariah and I would probably disagree on this. I think it could be on a population basis the fact that, and it's not like blaming mothers, but the fact that parents 
are more constrained in time relative availability for their children than, than previously may have something to do with it. Sure, absolutely. So right. it'd be really difficult to sort out what's causing what. And I think in part it goes hand in hand with the lack of um, high quality childcare possibilities for working when both parents work or if it's a single mother, you know, and she's working. And what happens in those childcare facilities where the kids are spending many hours with the dad. Did, were you able to collect any data on um, like family meals in terms of routine and how often they ate meals at home versus on the go, or is that something for future? First of all, we didn't collect any data. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, I mean, are, there, are there data available? Um, well, I know we not, not in this data, not in these data sets. This is part of home? Yeah, it's part of home. Okay, so I don't know. So they, they were in the house a while. I mean, hour, hour and a half probably. Um, it, 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 yeah. Right. So it's not, you know, the, so the observer wasn't there a trivial amount of time because the home, the home inventory is very, exhaustive if not exhausting I mean it takes it takes quite a while to go through all of the all of what has to be there so I you're right we shouldn't find out and know about the exact amount of time on average that they were in the household but it's you know if after an hour there's no expression of warmth whatsoever that's not not so good Jan do you have a question yeah. Parental practice is kind of get funneled down 
Now, I don't know. I actually don't know of a study that actually would be interesting to, in, to investigate whether anybody studied uh, the transmission of, of practices from generation to generation because there's two forces at play. One is what you're describing, that there's this tendency to sort of do what was done before, but there's also a tendency to absolutely don't do what was done to me when I was a child. <laughs> No, I mean, the, the ECLSK was a study that was primarily about educational achievement sponsored by you know, the education department and USDA paid for the um, inclusion of food insecurity information and also the heights and weights, which was a stroke of great wisdom to do that because we've gotten a tremendous amount of learning out of that. So we don't have a richness of economic information or any of those other kinds of things. And in, in parallel, the uh, PSID is primarily an economic survey. Um, so again, somebody had the wisdom to build on that for the child development supplement, but um, we don't have a lot of other health or health-related behavior information. No, and this is actually, we pretty much don't know very, very much about those things. There's a study that um, um, somebody, some, some of you know about um, that uh, Russ Pate has been attempting to um, bring into fruition. Um, this is trim. You know, where, where the people involved, you know, have, are specifically looking at that question. What, what is... Um, potentially in there. Now, if, if Sherry were here, she would be talking about self-regulation because um, the Triple the P program I mentioned that's related to child abuse and neglect, it was the basis of the intervention that was done in South Carolina across 18 counties, um, is, is built primarily on the notion of that um, your, the development is about, not only about, but is in an important way is about the um, about child's, the development of a child's ability to regulate it, their own behavior and that um, an important role for parenting is, is to bring that about. Um, you know, emotional, effective development is also important, of course, but, and cognitive too, but that, that self-regulation, and so self-esteem is a part of that, a part of that story because it feeds into that. So I think that's, that's one place if people are looking to do further work uh, where I'd like to see investment made is, and, and it's difficult because self, the self-regulatory capacity of a child is, is something that obviously occurs over time. We don't, 
expect a six-year-old to be able to do what a 12-year-old can do in terms of self-regulation. And then, you know, by the time they get to 15, we wonder what happened to any of the self-regulation <laughs> they had whatsoever. But, um, but it, even, in the, even in the psychology literature itself, itself, although it's clearly been established that this is important, even looking longitudinally at how does it actually develop over time and, and how do you see at different ages what children's capacities are and how they change is not well characterized. Um, we didn't look at that specifically, although, well, I, probably at some point we looked at that. <laughs> um, Rasmi looked at a very long list of potential other factors. Um, do you want to comment on this question? One of the challenges we have is that it's, it's, the, it's the issue of um, you know, how do you parse out separate effects. We know, for example, that how families are structured in the sense that you were talking about, Amy, is, is going to be strongly related to income. So here we're looking at income. Is it truly income or is it the fact that income in turn is related to a higher likelihood of single headed households and low income families and then that's also tied to ethnicity because we know that that the rate of single-family headed households is higher in certain ethnic groups than others, so it, it's all mixed together in what we call income. And then when you try to you know, parse it out, um, it's just difficult to, to do. Is it likely that that matters? Sure, I think so. Anything else? We do have data on parenting that, you know, we were looking, we decided to look at one age and then a, an age um, six years, what is it, six years, five years later for UCLSK and four years later, three years, I can't do this, three years later, no, five years later, about five years in both cases, right? Okay, so we do have measures of behavior the second time. Um, and, and and so, uh, they're not always the same behaviors, of course, because different things were measured and the interactions are different. And we did some analysis related to that, and there's some interesting things there, but we decided to leave that aside, and this was complicated enough. Um, I would say that part of the reason we focused it this way is because at least we can say, all right, we looked at kindergarten and are asking the question, if we, if we look at variation in how parents interact with their children in kindergarten, what happens after that? If you look at the behaviors afterwards, so we sort of have chronology in our favor a little bit here in terms of cause and effect, but if you look at the later behaviors, it just makes it more complicated. But
Yeah, and uh, another example is spanking. Okay, spanking is relatively common in kindergarten. It, it gets less prevalent later, thankfully. Um, but on the other hand, you could think, well, if a child is spanked when they're in the fifth grade, that's probably particularly not good. So it, the meaning of these things itself is going to change. So it's complicated. But if somebody's excited about doing this, um, <laughs> the, the data are there, and Rasmi will be very glad to hand it over to you. One of, one of the big challenges we have is that, I mean, we've done, we, you know, we've looked at it each time and uh, all of that. W one of the problems is that, um, and I've explored this more with discipline than anything else because of some other studies that we've done, is that these behaviors don't scale very well. So, um, and it's, I think it's because the behaviors themselves are exchangeable. You don't, you know, when, when parents, if you look at different disciplinary practices, for example, parents, uh, it's not like, you know, a scale, we can build scales when we say, okay, if a, if a parent does one of these, they're more likely to do the others, right? That's the basis of all scaling that we do. Well, that's not true um, because they're substitutions. So if parent does A, they don't do B um, because in the situations that would call for B, they're already doing A. So, so um, so one of the challenges we had, as you can see, is we ended up deciding that it was best to look at each of the items separately because scaling them just did not prove to be very satisfactory. So that means at some point you just um, have to limit the analysis you're doing to what, what you think is most meaningful, and this is what we thought was most meaningful. I think, not to go out too far off on this tangent, but this is an underappreciated aspect of characterizing environments in general. And, and here we're talking about the cognitive environment and the disciplinary environment and sort of the routine environment. And we're talking about physical environments. But in all of those cases, our usual way of thinking psychometrically doesn't necessarily apply. Okay.